Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today, I am joined by the world's most influential organisational psychologist, Amy Edmondson. We're going to be talking about the science of psychological safety and also about failure. Now, recently, you might have been told to embrace failure, that you should be prepared to fail fast, to that failure isn't final. We hear all of these things. And whilst it might sound good, it doesn't always feel good to fail. Now, Amy says in her new book that learning from mistakes is easier said than done. So I have many thoughts, many questions on this topic, and I'm really excited to get into it. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. As I said, I... Well, so many things that come up, I think, when we think about the topic of failure. But first, I think I wanted to start with psychological safety, because for anyone who's not familiar with that term, um, maybe if they work in in the corporate world, maybe if they work in HR, they might have heard of this before. They might have um, seen a LinkedIn post about it. But I'd love for you to tell us what psychological safety actually is in practice for anyone who's not familiar with that. Thank you. Yes, it's important to clarify because people have all sorts of misconceptions. So what it is, is a belief that your environment is safe for interpersonal risks, like mm-hmm. speaking up with a question, a concern, a dissenting view, or even a mistake. And that's not easy or natural or normal at work, mm-hmm. but it is absolutely critical for learning. And we'll, we'll dig into that, I'm sure. But what it isn't is being nice or being comfortable or being free from conflict. You know, in fact, in a more psychologically safe environment, there's more conflict because there's more honesty, you know, more, more speaking up. So probably the quickest way to say it is it's a sense of permission for candor. And I like that you said straight away that it's not about this soft environment, which is, yeah, very nice. There's no conflict. There's no thoughtful disagreement. You know, we all have to actually, I think, yeah, an environment where people feel as though they can say, hold on a minute, I don't agree. Or, you know, perhaps being able to really share what you actually think. I've worked in places before where everyone sits around and they get given the opportunity to speak. So everyone will say, "Okay, this is the chance. And they say, yep, okay, fine. They walk out of the door, they walk out of the meeting, they go to get lunch and they complain and they moan and they roll their eyes and they go, oh, you know, this person never listens or this manager this or it's the wrong strategy or the wrong idea. And my personality used to think, why didn't you say that in the room? But maybe as someone who's maybe, depending on your role in the organisation, depending on your personality type, maybe I felt as though I would say, well, I don't think this is a good idea, but other people really didn't feel as though they could, but two seconds out the door, they would moan and complain. So what's, yeah, what's going on there? Well, and here's what I think is the most interesting thing about it. So my data show that psychological safety varies significantly across groups Mm. in the same organization. Now you're referring to personality and, you know, individual differences. And there are personality differences for sure in people's sort of willingness to speak up forthrightly. But it's more, in fact, my my data show that there's far more differences between groups than between individuals within groups. So this is really about 
kind of taken for granted norms in a, in a work environment. The people just get subtle and not so subtle messages about what's appropriate and what's expected. And, you know, some of those maybe make sense in, in certain ways, but they really can be at odds with the goal of learning, mm. making good decisions, you know, innovating. And, and so most of the time we really need to upgrade the environment to achieve the goals that we really want to achieve. Yeah. And whose responsibility is that? So if somebody thinks, okay, I want the environment of my team to be able to, yeah, share their ideas and have disagreements and get the best outcomes and everyone can learn, it all sounds great. Who is responsible for creating that? There's really two answers. And, and, and the obvious one is the manager or the team leader, you know, the boss, whatever yeah. that means. But a more subtle one, and they're both right, is everyone. Right. And any, everyone and anyone can make a difference to creating a more accountable, transparent, you know, psychologically safe environment simply by doing things like calling attention to the, you know, the complexity or the, or the challenge or the importance of the work we're doing. Mm -hmm. Let's say we're taking care of patients at the NHS. If you sort of periodically just remind yourself and your colleagues that, wow, this is, there's high stakes here, you're making it more obvious why people's voice are needed. Easiest thing you can do to create more psychological safety is just ask people questions. Like, yeah. Adrian, what are you thinking? Right? Then it becomes incredibly awkward to stay quiet. Yeah. So your natural instinct to hold back, I don't want to say anything, is immediately thwarted when someone asks you a good question. Mm. You have to answer. Right. So, but but it is the case that managers have an outsized responsibility because people look to them for clues about how are we supposed to behave around here yeah and so what is i guess the main benefit so if you are in an environment if we're able to work in a place where we can say oh i made a mistake i need someone to help me with this or maybe whatever the scenario is what is the i mean it sounds obvious but what is the real yeah. benefit from a data perspective of people being able to do that well, the data show like robustly over hundreds of studies that where there's higher psychological safety in a team, there's better performance. Mm. Now, more concretely, sometimes, and I think most importantly, that when the performance relates to innovation, it's really true. Right? Because you just can't be innovative yeah. if people are holding back their good ideas or if they're not listening or if they're not speaking up early about something that doesn't work. Mm. Right? So the, the um, relationship between psychological safety and performance is well established. More specifically, psychological safety, more innovation in teams, more quality improvement success, a lot of healthcare research showing more psychologically safe teams or healthcare units have more success with quality improvement efforts. And, and really, just about Endless. anything you need in the yeah. knowledge era. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting, that word innovation, isn't it? Because if you ask any team, any leadership team, you know, I go and talk to organizations from startups right through to huge organizations and companies, and every team in the world says, we want to innovate, you know, we want to innovate in this area, innovate here. Innovation has just become the word. Everybody wants to innovate. And when you break that down and you look at what it, what it actually requires, so creativity, sharing of ideas, uh, a willingness to try things and fail, which we're going to talk about, I think it's, and also diverse thought, diverse thinking. So as you said, if there's certain groups who in one environment, let's say 
specifically women, in certain environments where there's lots of alpha male leaders, then you're never going to have diverse thoughts and diverse work and outcomes if there's only certain people in the room that are listened to. Because we've all worked in those places, right? Right. And you have to have diverse thought. Then you have to actually process that diverse thought to create something new and innovative. Mm. Right. So it's, it's, you know, innovation, as you said, it's such a buzzword, but it's so much harder to do than to say. And, Mm. and perhaps, especially because we don't like failure and failure is part and parcel of innovation. Yeah, well, let's come on to that then. So you said it yourself, we don't like failure. And I know because I've read the book, you categorize failure, you talk about not all failure being, you know, it's not as binary as good or bad. There's different kinds of failure as well. But firstly, let's acknowledge we don't, whether we're told that failure is good and whether we're told that there's a lesson there, it never feels good. It never feels good when you when you miss the mark or, you know, we often feel ashamed, embarrassed. We feel like other people maybe think that we're stupid or that we, we were naive. Why did you do that? How could you, you know, it was so obvious from, from in hindsight. So where, I guess, fundamentally does that come from? Why do we all <laughs> hate failure? Well, I think we hate failure for three reasons. I mean, three main factors. One is just spontaneous aversion to failure, our own failures. Right? We're we're less upset about other people's failures. Let's let's face it. But it's just there's an instinctive emotional reaction that that is not even processed. It's just instinctive. And the second thing is just our confusion that you've been alluding to about what kinds of failures. You know, we know in, instinctively failure is not good, but intellectually we can appreciate that there are are some good aspects because that's how you make new discoveries and all the rest so but we don't have a kind of clear and crisp way to distinguish the good from the bad so mm-hmm. i think that that's an important contributor and the last one is just the social stigma which you also alluded to right that just fear that people will think less of us mm-hmm. and if they think less of us will be be deprived of opportunities and friendships and 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 all the rest so it's a kind of um, you know, it's obvious, right? It's obvious why we don't like failure. And we can listen to the happy talk about failure, but then we can sort of deep down go, uh-uh, I don't mm. think so, or at least not for me. I'd rather succeed. Thank you very much. Yeah, exactly. And of course, we know we're praised when we succeed. So if you think right back to being a child, you know, whether it's, I don't know, being applauded for your first steps or whether it's getting the sticker for, you know, a gold star at school, we're applauded and we are celebrated when we succeed. So of course, it feels the inverse of that is failure. So if there's so many people telling us that failure isn't all bad, then I guess let's get into that. Like what kind, how can we, first of all, start to open our minds to that idea? And then what are some kind of examples, I suppose, of how failure can be advantageous for us? You know, I think we can open up our minds to that idea when we step back to reflect on the degree to which really successful people experience failure, right? And there's no end of quotes to this effect. You know, the the the, the great basketball player, Michael Jordan, who says, oh, I've failed, you know, 17,000 times or something, and that's why I succeed. Or Thomas Edison, who said, I haven't failed. I just found 10,000 ways that don't work, right? Yeah. We kind of appreciate that where great achievement happens, failure had to happen along the way. So then you say, well, what is it can we characterize the kinds of failures that produce great achievement? Mm. And that's where I call this intelligent failure. And I think that's where we can start to get a little more comfortable with it. And an intelligent failure is one that happens in legitimately new territory. Mm. You can't just look up the answer. In pursuit of a goal, driven by a hypothesis or at least good reason to believe it might work. And then finally, it's as small as possible. 
right? You don't you don't want to waste enormous time or resources in a failed experiment if it could have been smaller and get the same knowledge mm -hmm. from it. And clearly, every scientist, every inventor, you know, every elite athlete has experienced many of those intelligent failures on the path to their success. And so I think when you start to reflect on that, you can get comfortable with, oh yeah, that's how you get there. Yeah, and I think it could be easy whilst you're in that journey. So let's say, for example, you're going to fail nine nine times and the 10th time is, is successful. When you're in the failures, mm. I think it's probably normal for people to maybe question and think hey are you mad like why are you doing this thing you know you keep trying you're not getting there this isn't working you know and maybe how can people be okay with that if they feel that okay this is something let's say for an example I wanted to start this podcast four and a half years ago and let's say people are like well you know podcasting isn't it wasn't then what it is now and you know just basically why do you want to do this it's going to be a lot of work you've never done it before like all of these kind of things you might so fail you might fail you know you might put all this time and effort and energy into it maybe no one's gonna listen to it how do you I think without just being <laughs> stubborn how do you kind of rationalize rationalize yeah, rationalize rationalize thank you how do you rationalize this pursuit of this goal when it feels as though you're constantly failing like door closed door closed door closed how do you know the difference between that and actually thinking yeah okay this is something that's not going to work I need to walk away from it you know that's actually a very um it's it's a very important question and there isn't a, a mechanical answer or a simple answer, right? They're, they're, it's definitely going to involve judgment. But I think here's the test. Right? So what we're trying to do here is distinguish between stubbornness and persistence. And, you know, and stubbornness is I'm just trying something again and again and again. I'm, I'm hitting my head against the wall and everyone else is thinking, there's no way that's going to work anyway. And persistence is, you know, yeah, I'm just going to keep on trying and keep on getting back up. And so how do you know which it is? And I think you have to have a legitimate argument for why this could work, but it hasn't yet. So, for example, Sarah Blakely, who famously became one of the youngest ever self-made billionaires and maybe the first woman mm. self-made billionaire, had an idea for Spanx. Yep. Right. And she knocked on, you know, countless manufacturers' doors and they said, textile manufacturers, they said, no, you know, not interesting, not going to make it for you. She kept trying. I would argue that was the right kind of wrong because mm -hmm. she had sort of made up some of these garments for her friends and sisters and other other family members and they loved them, right? They were passionate about them. So in a sense, she believed in the product and believed the product. If I could only get it in people's hands, they will love it. And the manufacturing was the hurdle over which she needed to get to. But let's say she had an idea for, you know, a product and not only will no one make it, no one really even is terribly enthusiastic about it. So that that would be the kind of situation where you can't really put together an ar a good argument for why it's worth persisting. Mm. You need at least some data, some evidence that if I can get over this hurdle, then you know, it, it, it will be great. Yeah, yeah, I really like that, having some proof. Whether that's, yeah, some evidence. Yeah, some evidence, I really like that. Looping back to my previous thoughts about failure and about the idea that we don't like it 
I often think and I talk a lot about accountability. So, you know, obviously on this podcast, I try to encourage people, the listeners to say, okay, let's take responsibility. Let's be accountable for ourselves, for our actions, for our daily habits and behaviours, because it is my belief that if we do that, then we can pursue our goals. We can achieve, we can, uh, I suppose, you know, course correct and all of these things. If we look at failures or look at mistakes or look at barriers and hurdles and say, what's the role that I play within this and how can I do better? However, I think there's a fine line between accountability and blame and shame and saying, okay, it's all on me, it's all my fault, you know, and also I think some people respond well to that. You know, I listened to an audiobook recently and the guy was pretty much saying that. He was like, if there's any problem in your life, it is your fault. Own your mistake, own it. And I was like, okay. So maybe some people like that kind of tough love, but how can we, yeah, take accountability without feeling that heavy burden of blame? Yeah, it, I mean, this is such an important topic. And I love, I mean, I think part of the problem is, and your question alludes to this, that we equate, most people equate the word accountability with punishment, right? Mm. You'll be you'll be held accountable. Yep. You know, that means bad things will happen to you if you don't hit the target or the goal or whatever. And the 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 word actually refers to taking account right telling giving me the account of what happened it's like the story the narrative and if you think about it that way then it becomes powerful and empowering mm. to be able to recognize your own role and to take account of it because then you are the one who can who can alter it going forward no one else can do that for you but it is still the case that sometimes people are using it in a blame and shame way. So I think if, as long as we can, I think best practice is let's you let's be accountable, let's feel accountability, but from a place of strength, which is I'm smart enough and creative enough and strong enough to kind of take account of where I fell short mm. and be super motivated to close that gap going forward. Yeah. What about on the flip side of the coin? So people who they want to, they're quick to blame others. So for example, in a scenario where there's two people, maybe a relationship, maybe a personal relationship, and there's a breakdown within that. Maybe it's siblings, maybe it's romantic partner, friendship, and there's a breakdown there. And straight away, that kind of accountability piece is, well, they did this, they said that, they made that mistake, they should have done better. And it's blaming the other person without thinking, did I play a part in this? No, of course I didn't. I did nothing wrong. It was all them. Definitely their fault. Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, that is the one of the oldest psychological findings uh, there is, right? It's a, it's a fundamental attribution error, which is when something goes wrong, it's your fault. I, I, it's not because I'm a bad person. My brain spontaneously goes there. But wisdom means, okay, let's, let's, talk, let's walk it back. You know, let me think through the explanation I've just spontaneously given myself and be a little more thoughtful about it and realize, first of all, in any conflict, there's always there's always two perspectives and there's always there's always multiple contributions and surely some of them are mine now the the sad thing is i will feel better in the short run if i think it's entirely you because that makes me blameless but in the longer run it also makes me powerless because right? i'm now a victim of forces outside my control so a yeah. place of real strength let alone wisdom is to say huh i contributed to that outcome Right. I may not, I don't want to say I'm fully 100% responsible for the problem we just experienced, but to begin to realize what I did and how I contributed 
just gives me opportunity to learn and grow. Yeah, well, grow. That is the word I'm thinking yeah, of then. It's the growth, right. isn't it? To be able to do that. To be able to, especially in a moment where there's motion and especially in an interpersonal relationship, yeah. to be able to say, okay, what did I do that maybe didn't help this scenario or could have, you know, what didn't I do that could have made it better? I think you give an example actually in the book, maybe about your husband. And I think I wrote down the words, <laughs> the fundamental attribution error around the mistake and the fault, just being something else. So for example, the reason I missed the flight was not because I left late. The reason was because the traffic was bad. Exactly. Or someone saying, you know, another, yeah. another example. Now it made me think about, it made me think about luck as well. And the way sometimes when we do, when we, maybe have good favor we have good luck it's we would attribute that success to ourselves but I did this and I did that and that's why I got this outcome but when things don't go well we kind of say oh it was bad luck you know exactly and, and, you know? That's, and that you've just described the fundamental attribution error yeah. and it's humorous it yeah. really is funny it's it's part of the human condition and it's funny but it doesn't help us very much right it certainly mm -hmm. doesn't help us grow become better people better partners you know, better professionals. Yeah, I think it might help some people to be less stressed. Yeah. I think, you know, some people, they kind of walk through life, my son being yeah. one of them. He's very laid back. He kind of walks through life. I feel like anything could happen and Jude will say, oh, well, you know, it, was, it wasn't his fault. You know, I, not my fault. So in some ways, I think maybe there's a little bit of upside. But in reality, if we can look at those things and go, okay, I could have done this, I could have done that, then I guess there's that opportunity for learning. And is it as simple that we just through experience we're just going to learn this or are there some more practical steps that people need to do to cement this learning no i think there are i think we don't just learn it automatically through experience i think we have to practice the sort of self-reflection skills that allow us to say okay you know let, let's take a look at what happened and let's take a look at the things that i did right and the things that i maybe could do better next time i think a key is to practice a kind of forward-facing mindset right? because when you get stuck in the looking back and oh I fell short not only does it feel bad mm. but there's nothing you can do about the past ever but if you're looking at it scientifically as inputs to the future then it's empowering right mm. then it could almost you could almost have a positive feeling about it because okay I, you know I, I got that slightly wrong but I can change that yeah yeah, I think that is really powerful. As someone who, you know, I work in the health and wellbeing space, I'm a runner, and I think with something so practical as running, it is so almost like easy and transparent to see that. So you might think about how did I fuel before this run or, you know, lack of fuel if you if the race doesn't go well or mm. something that's different, you know, my shoes were different or you might get a gait analysis from a coach or strength training. There's all these things where exactly as you describe, you can look back at your last race, look at the inputs, look at what went well, look at what didn't, and then you apply it to the next one and hopefully things improve. But I think in our, in our, maybe in our careers, maybe in, as I said, relationships, maybe in our communication, I don't think we have that same tangible, okay, I came out of that meeting, that person talked over me and I didn't really respond well. Or when that person asked me a question and I, you know, I felt annoyed and I, I maybe snapped back quickly. Or there's sometimes we don't necessarily come away doing get a notebook and say, next time I'm going to respond with X, Y and Z. But maybe we should. I think we should. In fact, what you described about your running is true for any elite athlete. Right. And that's or any sport mm -hmm. where they, they will look at the game videos in enormous detail to figure out exactly what happened and to use those valuable data to, to do better next time. And that's what that's what athletes for sure do. But I think that's what truly great 
sort of achievers in any field, whether that's a scientific field or, uh, you know, entrepreneurial field or, or um, you know, I don't know, academic field like yeah. the one I'm in. So this is what you kind of have to do. And so I think that's one of the core practices that anyone can adopt, which is more reflection, more, more accurate, thoughtful, concrete reflection. You know, take the time to, whether it's keep a diary or, or you know, notes in your phone or whatever, to just really think through, what did I do? What, what would I like to try next time? The way a scientist does in a lab. Yeah, and it doesn't matter, I think, you know, if you feel silly doing it. You know, I have one friend who I used to talk to her a lot about um, this idea of, you know, speaking up in, in her work setting because she said she definitely felt that she had these great ideas and she knew the data points, she knew what she needed to say. But in the moment, she was like, I always feel overwhelmed. You know, they're kind of in a fast environment. People talk over me. And she was kind of like, I just shrink into myself and don't say anything. And then afterwards think, well, you know, six weeks later, she's kind of like, I did say that idea six weeks ago, but nobody listened to her. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of this friend a lot, actually. And I think that what you said then, you know, if she was to come out of the meeting or come out of a, a situation and write down okay this ha she might feel a bit you know mm. embarrassed or a bit silly but I think actually when you do it you start to see these patterns and you can start to think okay if and when that happens again how do you want to respond next time that's right because it's all about shrinking the time between you're having that insight and and being able to act on it right yeah. and if, if you've been if you've been journaling about it and then the very next meeting, when you, you'll suddenly notice, oh, I'm about to do it again. And this will lead me to have a regret in an hour when, in fact, I could just jump right in Yeah. right now. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if you feel silly, those small things, you know, the practice of it, it doesn't mean it's going to happen straight away. But I do think there is a real power in, and as you've said a few times, actually, being empowered to have this awareness and to say, actually, this is something I can action and I can change is, is really powerful. 
and your first audition there might be 40 people mm. and then they whittle it down to eight and then the final two they took us to Paris and you do the final um, audition on the stage you you learn the blocking you're with, there with mm. the director you can feel and breathe and you're on the stage so there was myself and there was one other girl there she was a French uh, art performer you can see where this story's going yeah and I didn't get it and obviously you come I came after back to, all that yes after all that after weeks after months and it's the it's the energy it's the emotion it's the it's the envisioning as someone who I'm very you know I suppose keen on this idea of positive affirmation visualization I could see myself I have got this role I'm here mm. I can live it breathe mm. it touch it so to then come back to London and receive the call that said oh. the other girl got that I was like oh my gosh and then it did feel final because I thought okay yes arguably in a year or two there's going to be another audition but I felt as though I've missed the boat and if I'd got that one at that age that's going to start my career and then and then and then and it's all just feels like it's just whipped away and when someone says to you failure isn't final maybe in a moment like that especially I was young mm. you feel like no this is the end you know and I don't know there's probably other examples where people really do miss the boat Right. And they can't ever get the opportunity again. So, yeah, I well, suppose how do people navigate any, that? Anytime a failure is f truly fatal, meaning literally fatal, of course, that is the end, right? Yeah. And there's no happy talk about that. But let's just take apart this failure, your failure, yeah. because, in fact, that's one of those great stories where it's so easy to tell both sides, right? One is all that work, all that investment, and you missed it, mm -hmm. right? And so many good things could have come out of your having it. The other is, wow, you got unbelievably far. Right? 40 people were allowed to audition the first time, and then only two you know, made it to Paris. Mm. So it, it's such a testament to your talents and appeal and all the rest, right? So it's, and why does that matter? Because if you take in that latter interpretation, not just to make yourself feel better, but to really own. Yeah, I did that. The, yeah. what, allowed you to get that far mm -hmm. and then to say uh, you know I, I bet you cannot name a performer in history who didn't have a similar story yeah. right? you just simply can't win every audition and that's true in any field in life you cannot win every contest mm -hmm. you know the very best tennis players in the world are losing quite a few matches right? and and so it's just part and parcel of competing at the very top yeah. right for sure but but um, more generally, like how do we how do we caution against? I think the the best analytic way to look at this is that you invested a lot, but I'm going to call that an intelligent failure for the following reason: first of all, absolutely new territory, you hadn't done anything like that before; second of all, in pursuit of a goal, that's obvious; um, third, you had done your homework, mm. and then and then finally, it was no bigger than it had to be. I mean, it's hard to say at what point should you have dropped out because the possibility you might not make it at the very end. Mm. Never, right? There would have been no good rationale to drop out because you might not be chosen at the very end, right? So it epitomizes the concept of an intelligent failure. You learned a lot. You probably gained lots of skills and drills from making it that far that have 
served you ever since. Yeah, I think, I hope so. I think what I'd say in reflection, because it was such a long time ago, that obviously the next days and weeks, honestly, Mm. I can still remember it. I came back to London and I was working in a clothes store at the time. I was working in a clothes store not far from here. And I remember standing and feeling so sorry for myself, you know, hanging up the jeans, moving the clothes. I had this sad face. I just felt like I'm supposed to be on the stage and I'm here. But honestly, with years and years and years, it's been a long time since then, I actually think that I wasn't, and this is really, I guess, honest to say, I wasn't the best person got the job. I wasn't, I was so young. I think, you know, she was right. a little bit older. She'd, she had her voice fit the character more. I basically just, mm. yeah, I was close and it right. wasn't the right time, right age, whatever you want to call it. I just at that time thought, no, this is it. I am ready. I am ready. But in hindsight, I can see I actually wow. probably wasn't. Right, right. Yeah. So that story, I mean, I think that's just a perfect metaphor for the approach and attitude that all our listeners need to have for being willing to go for it, right? Play to win because we're so naturally inclined to play not to lose. Like I'm just not going to enter any contest that I'm unlikely to win, right? Because it doesn't feel, you know, it it, it does, it it just, it's too risky, right? I don't want to take those kinds of risks. I don't want to risk coming up short. So I'm going to, you know, just kind of take the easy way out and that doesn't that clearly doesn't um doesn't get you to where you really want to be yeah i really like that not playing play to win don't play not to lose i think Mm -hmm. that is yeah that's that's powerful and the last thing i'm going to say about this story is that (laughs) i think sometimes people hear stories like that and then there's always the next bit the happy ending where they'll say and then i got the lion king the west end and you know there's always a happy ending and i think that's often my Mm. i guess my problem when i listen to people talk about you know you should take more risks you should fail more is that yes we will hear the entrepreneur story that says i failed with my 31st business ideas but then the next one was the one that was airbnb and we hear those stories so often but we don't always hear the story of someone that says you know what i failed 30 times and i didn't get the win at the end and surely that must also be an option no, that is a good point. And then you have to be able... So how do you know that it was okay to have invested all that time? I mean, look and talk to yourself honestly about what did I get from it? Mm. And there will be times where the answer is not much or not enough. Like, yeah. in fact, I went down a rabbit hole and there might have been places where I could have gotten off the track earlier. That definitely happens. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a, a student years ago, PhD student, who was so convinced about a particular research idea that really just didn't have much merit. And it was way, 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 way too long before they were willing to give up. And, and it essentially cost them their career, right? Mm-hmm. Because they just were so stubbornly attached to an idea that the world was not giving any positive feedback to. So I'll, I'll go back to the idea that there is judgment here. There's not a sort of simple playbook where you know for sure, ah, now's the time to get off or, or yes, keep keep going. Yeah, yeah, that is tricky, isn't it? And I keep mentioning the word hindsight, but I think that is the problem is that we kind of look back on our previous mistakes with this harsh shadow of, you know, like I say, we were naive or, but actually in that moment, we are doing what we think is best for that person to have persevered Mm -hmm. for so long. They must have felt like, no, this is going to be, this is it. So yeah, judgment, it is. But keep it within, you know, keep the risk that you take within the scope of what you can take, you know, whether that's financially or or physically or emotionally, you don't want to take a risk that really is too big because it may go wrong. Mm. 
Yeah, I think acknowledging that is really important because, again, with just like the failure conversation, often risk. I hear it a lot in the entrepreneur space, which, you know, people have to take big risks, risk it all. But actually, I think it's such an important point to say to people, don't risk it all. Because really consider what the alternative or what the outcome of this failure could be. And if that's okay, and you can, maybe some people have a fallback. Maybe some people have the privilege of a safety net, but not everyone does. And I think that's a, a very important differentiation to make. You also talk about creating systems. Now, I am quite a systematic person. I love, a, I love, you know, I think my brain is much more of a mathematical, you know, I like data, I like check boxes, I like that kind of stuff. So the word systems just speaks to me straight away. So how could somebody think about their systems or their schedules or things that they do, their daily routine, their morning routine, in terms of maybe preempting or avoiding or being aware of potential failures? I think it starts by an honest assessment of the recurring failures you might experience. You know, if you're if you're perpetually late for meetings, that is a sign that it might be a good idea to, to sort of put in place some systems that will help prevent that. Because remember the fundamental attribution error with each of these lateness, you know, oh, well, it's traffic, how could I have known? Somebody right. else's fault. Right, somebody else's fault. Yeah. Um, and yet with enough data, you begin to realize, wait a minute, if there's a pattern then there's probably a way I'm contributing to it that that I need to I need to alter, and so systems like checklists, which are you know famous in aviation and healthcare, but they we can use them in our own lives too. Mm-hmm. Like it took me forever, but I I finally created a packing checklist. I mean, it's just too many this. times yes. that I showed up without socks, you know, <laughs> in the winter, and yeah. that's not good. So, how hard is it to just create a packing checklist of the things? that you absolutely don't want to forget or have to go out and buy while you're in a strange city and just have it live by the suitcase. Yes. I have this exact same thing. And the reason was because I now have about 18 adapters. <laughs> like you say, you go to the airport. Oh, I forgot my adapter. How many times are you going to buy an adapter in an airport, Adrienne? So I have exactly that. It's a piece of paper now. It's folded and it's inside my suitcase. And every time I open the suitcase to pack, I don't care if it feels like yeah, I'm a child. I look at the list and I'm like, oh, yeah, this and this and this. And I don't forget things anymore. Right. It also frees you up. Right. It frees your mind up for the things you'd really rather think about about than these kinds of very mundane details. Mm. Yeah, and we do this for young people, I think. You know, I definitely do this for my son, but I think we could, yeah, definitely benefit. I think I need more systems, to be honest, in my life. And I think that actually sometimes when you mentioned then, okay, the recurring lateness, that might be one thing. But I think there are often things, for example, I talk a lot about sleep and the fact that when we're sleep deprived, we make bad decisions. When we're sleep deprived, things feel worse. Yeah, I know that a lot of people are sleep deprived all the time yeah. they stay up late they stay up late right. and they always say to me Adrian, the power hour it sounds great but I can't get up early I'm so tired and I think this is a system that I wish people would just really take seriously and think how can I create a system that means I get to bed and get adequate sleep have you ever heard the phrase what do I need to let go of to get what I really want mm. I think this is Sleep is one of those areas where, you know, why are people not getting enough sleep? Well, they're staying up late binge watching something, let's say, or, you know, whatever. But they're, they are, unbeknownst to them, making choices. Uh, and it's all, there's so many things that we like to do or want to do. But at some point when you realize, I don't feel good without sleep, then you create, let's say, a system to, to make it a priority to say, okay, I'm going to turn out the light at whatever time it is. 
Yeah. And I think that example of, you know, the lateness, I think sometimes it's it's maybe a second order of consequence or a third order consequence. So, yes, you maybe there was traffic or yes, maybe you didn't pack the stuff, but getting up late or feeling overwhelmed and feeling stressed and feeling all of these things are exasperated when you're sleep deprived. So I know it seems like such a small thing, but I think if people could have some system that says, OK, I'm going to prioritize going to bed earlier, sleeping more. A lot of their maybe mistakes, failures, things that happen at earlier hours of the morning when you're rushing, just just the concept and the feeling when we rush, it would be eradicated because you're not rushing. Right. And, and you rightly point to the kind of cognitive resources that are required to do what we're talking about, which is to kind of process failure effectively or to, to set yourself up for stretch goals like this. It actually takes a lot of mental effort. And it's so hard to do. And it's so hard to talk yourself off the ledge, you know, when things go wrong, if you don't have enough sleep. Like yeah. You really need that. Um, you really need to be well rested to do this this hard kind of analytic, emotional work. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're going through a period of in your life as well, where you're in a period of increased stress or lack of sleep, for example, if you've just had a baby or if there's something going on in your life that's impacting that think taking notice of that and going okay in this season of my life yes you know I might make more mistakes I need to maybe be okay with that I might be feeling like things feel out of proportion you know something mm -hmm. might feel like this huge uh, really stressful thing because of the fact that yeah everything is uh, your resources are stretched and I think it's important for people to kind of give themselves a break sometimes right anything new I mean if you have a you have a, a child for the first time if you take on a new job you have a new partner anything new is going to come with bumps in the road it's going to come with you know you're not yet good at it so give yourself permission to learn and to get things wrong. Mm, yeah, expect some of those failures. Right. Okay, and the last thing before we move on to the Power Hour concept, I know that you are a mother of two sons, yes. and I really wanted to ask you, I suppose, a more personal side around, you know, you have all of this data, you're an academic, you know all of this information, but how do you go about imparting that, not just to young people, because <laughs> if you were, I'm sure, to speak to a room full of university students, they would probably listen to you because you know what you're talking about, but to your own <laughs> children, you're just mum. So yeah, any advice yeah. for parents on yeah. navigating failure with young people? Well, here's what not to do. Just <laughs> sit them down and lecture them. That won't work for sure. Um, I'm, I'm laughing also because a couple of years ago, almost two years ago, the Thinkers 50 um, identified me as the number one management thinker in the world, right? And my son, Nick, said, gosh, it must have been a tough year for thinking, right? So, <laughs> you know, you're never a prophet at home. But I think the, the real answer is model it, right? Do, which I don't consistently do by any stretch. But I, I was very influenced by Carol Dweck's work on mindset, which I read in graduate school. And, and as a parent, I think mindset is such an um, important thing to nurture in a child. Mm -hmm. And and she identifies between learning mindset, essentially, and performance mindset. Those aren't her terms, but I think that's the easiest way to understand it. And the you know most kids end up pretty quickly with a performance mindset, which is, you know, they want to get, they want to win the race, they want to get an A on the test. And so either consciously or subconsciously, they stop going for, you know, they stop playing to win. They start mm. taking the easier things because they're, they're so used to getting praise for getting things right, for having the right answer, for winning the contest, that they only want to enter easy contests. Yeah. And 
What you really want, of course, is to raise kids with a learning mindset who are just hungry to grow that muscle of their brain by by stretching it, by trying things that are hard, not trying things that are easy. And I did try, I didn't obviously lecture them about this, but I did try my very hardest to say, to comment on process and to ask them questions. Like, why are you, um, oh, tell me about how you're using color in this painting rather than just knee-jerk saying, oh, what a beautiful painting. Mm. Um, or tried, I tried very hard never to say, oh, you're so smart. You know, you, you got that right. But more like, oh, interesting strategy for solving that math problem. You know, so you're trying to get them to think about the joys of the process and the opportunity to just keep trying things rather than, you know, yeah, because that's praising complex. the answers. Yeah, I think that's really interesting and quite complex, isn't it? Because I think for a lot of parents, they think they're doing the right thing by saying, wow, you're so clever. You can do that puzzle by yourself. Or, wow, yeah, as right. you said, the painting is so beautiful. It's perfect. I'm going right. to put it on the wall. We think we're giving them, I suppose, boosting self -esteem. their self-esteem. Yeah. yeah, we think we're giving them self-esteem. But in fact, we're, we're creating a very risky forward motion for them right? because then it's like uh oh what if the next painting isn't beautiful or or what if I'm not really that clever and so you know give me an easy puzzle so I can solve it and then you'll say I'm clever again because we start mm -hmm. to be addicted to those you know those positive messages of how clever you are or how beautiful you are or how beautiful the painting is yeah and with younger children I'm thinking of but then as the children get older there might we might start to feel you know my son my eldest son is 12 now so you know you might start to feel that gap in the sense of maybe a little bit of independence you're trying to foster that so some things it might be actually you have to do the homework by yourself or you have to go and right. try this thing by yourself so how did you going back to the psychological safety part how do you foster with your own sons as they've got older the communication for them to tell you to ask and say I don't like doing this or I'm finding this difficult as opposed to just thinking I just have to get on with it on my own, but still giving them the independence. Yeah, you know, it's it's um, I think the most natural instinct for a parent is to want to shield your kid from discomfort or failure. And that's exactly what you should not do. Now, you do want to keep them safe, right? You don't want to let a child run out into the street after a ball. But you don't want to sort of swoop in and solve their problems for them, right? So if your child is doing his math homework and you kind of go, oh, you know, why don't you do it this way, just hovering over, um, you not only will deprive them of the sort of struggle and then joy of solving it, but, but you'll also kind of subtly indicate that you don't believe they're up to it, right? That you don't actually think they're as capable as they need to be to do their own yeah. their own homework. So I worked very hard not to, you know, partly it helped that I was so busy, right? But but to not sort of micromanage them doing their homework, you know, make sure to keep them safe from physical harm, but otherwise let them make choices that sometimes would end in failure. For example, when my son Jack was 16, he, he told me he was going to take a job selling solar panels door to door. And I'm thinking, Oh, no. Like, you know, people are going to slam the door in his face. It's going to be just uncomfortable. And, you know, they might even be downright rude. And he, he's kind of an introvert. And I didn't want him to have to go through that. But I bit my tongue and, you know, let him do it. And sure enough, he experienced plenty of failure. But he also had some successes. And he felt great about it. Mm -hmm. And he learned a lot. And it's just, you know, you almost... 
just don't want to let them go off and have pain. But you have to let them go off and have pain. Yeah, yeah, it's an inevitable part of life, isn't it? And as a parent, I'm sitting here going... I, I do that too much I think the, the interfering part mm-hmm. like you say I almost catch the catch the plate before it drops you know so it's like, right you know right you know right so it's good timing for me so let's talk about the power hour concept so on this show I love to ask people like yourself what they do with the first hour of each <gasps> day what time do they get up what do they have a routine do they not have a routine what motivates them to get up in the morning and what do they use with this i think the first hour is incredibly powerful i think it sets the tone for the rest of the day and it can't always be perfect but what would what do you do with the first hour well i think i'm going to take this experience as inspiration to use my first hour better going forward because the truth is first hour always involves coffee nothing wrong with that love coffee um and I think not so good, I often will get right on email. Bad idea, right? Then you get caught up in the little stuff you feel behind already versus use that first hour either in one of two things to do, you know, deeper thought. Like, what am I, what is today going to be about? Or what is this week going to be about? What am I excited about today? And do some of that doodling and noodling about what's possible um, and or exercise. Yeah. Right. And I often do. I'm also a runner, not in your league, I am sure, but I, um, I've always been a runner. I love running and getting out the door in the morning for a run just can f- set me up so well for the rest of the day. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree, obviously, as an early morning <laughs> runner. People have heard me say that a lot. I think this time of the year is such an mm. amazing time to go out in the morning because I feel like a few weeks ago it was still light in the morning and in a few weeks' time it's going to be pitch black dark. Whereas right now it's that in-between. Yes, it's that in-between where sometimes the morning, this, you know, it's kind of dark when I first go outside. By the time I get back to the front door, the sky can be orange, it can be pink. It's honestly, and I don't really see that many people because I do go mm. early so I don't really see traffic dog walkers nothing you just feel like you get the whole park Mm. or the whole road to yourself and I honestly think if anyone listening is ever going to take the power hour and say I'm going to start walking or running trust me best time of the year to do it is right now I completely agree yeah thank you so much for joining us for this conversation I've absolutely loved it I knew that I would I think there's so many things in there that I'm going to take away and the main one is going to be play to win do not play not to lose because I think in my personal life, professional life, there's so many areas where I've always advocated for, you know, 10x the goal, reach, whatever. But I think the, I guess the further I'm getting along within my career, maybe the more you feel a different pressure that you put on yourself, the more, the less willing I think I'm going to be to do that. So that was really powerful for the me. The stakes feel higher. Yes. And so therefore the fall or the, yeah, the fall feels further. But I think I don't want to play not to lose. I want to play to win. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks everyone, as always, for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do share it with someone. Let them know. Maybe send it to them directly on WhatsApp. Send it to them on DM. Let them know why you think that they would enjoy listening to this show. And I'll be back next week with another episode. See ya. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 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 